0: You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey, y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here. This podcast is Lesson 4 of Known, a nine week study on the Gospel of John. In this week's session, we discuss the rising opposition to Jesus despite the signs and wonders he performs. As it turns out, seeing isn't believing. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 19 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com known. Up until this point, we have had mostly positive reactions to Jesus. The people who have come to Him have been seeking something from Him. All the individuals that He has encountered, whether it be Philip and Nathaniel, Simon, Any of them, they have reacted positively to Jesus. They have proclaimed him as the Messiah. They have chosen to follow him. They have placed their faith in him. Um, The woman at the well, the official, they came to this moment of belief, and it changed them, and it changed the people around them because after they believed, they went and they testified to what Jesus had done, and they couldn't wait to tell everyone about it. But here is kind of the turning point in the story there's a lot of Jesus defending himself and his ministry to the Jews, and a lot of accusing Jesus of what he's doing wrong and Jesus saying, "No, no, you're wrong and it' it's just very confrontational in a way that I don't tend to think about Jesus because if you think about the way that we present Jesus to the world, we invite people to come, we say, "Please come, and Jesus is like, "You can come or not, but this is the truth. this is who I am and if you don't like it, then move along. You know, we have just closed out the last section with the official and his son. His son was healed miraculously, and we saw that that official wasn't actually there. He believed that Jesus' words were true, that his promise of healing for his son was actually going to happen before he saw it. In that case, we said that seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. And then we come to this section where Jesus performs a number of miracles. You know, he heals the invalid at the healing pool. He feeds the 5,000, and these people see these great signs, and yet it's not enough to turn them to faith. Instead, what it does is raises um, opposition to Jesus. And instead of faithfulness, we find not faith in the people who, who he encounters. And so it's a hard section. But there are some beautiful truths about Jesus in the gospel here that I think are important. So let's get started. Chapter 5, verse 1, we'll read. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now if you remember in the previous section, he had been kind of traveling. He had been in Samaria with the, the woman at the well on his way to Galilee. And he was there in Galilee because things were kind of happening in Judea. He wanted to kind of stay out of the limelight, and so he had gone to Galilee. But he went up to Jerusalem again for a feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast it is, but he goes for the feast. And it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, does anyone's Bible have a little superscript there with a footnote? Yeah. Okay. And the footnote, or some of your Bibles may include it. If you look at the verse numbers, mine goes from verse three, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, to verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. In verse four, is down in the footnotes. Does anyone have verse 4 right there in the text? Now, no. that's kind of strange, right? Ta- no. Yours is no. in the text? Okay, do you all have King James? What do you have? I have, I have New American Standard. New American Standard. Mine is New King James. New King James. Okay. So it depends on your translation where you'll find the verse. Mine is in the footnotes, and it says... Um, some manuscripts insert holy or in part, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the reason it's in the footnotes in mine, and in some of yours, um, or does yours have a note about it? Those of it that's in the text—is there any kind of note about it at all? Yeah. No. Yeah. Many, yeah. Many, many. What's the import- it's in parentheses. Perthes- manuscripts. Thank you. Okay, so I don't know how much you know about the Bible and how we came to have it in this form. Like it didn't fall down from heaven with light shining around it. Oh, the Holy Word of God. That is not how it happened. The Bible is a collection of different documents that were pieced together, and it wasn't finalized as the Holy Scriptures in this form until a few centuries after Christ. Had, had died and been resurrected. And so it was a collection of documents that was sacred to the church that the church fathers agreed were inspired by God. And we believe that it is the holy word of God, that he speaks to us through the word, that it's inspired by him. And that the manuscripts, if you look at the Baptist Faith and Message, I know we may not all be Baptist in here, but you know that in the original manuscripts, it is the inerrant inspired word of God. The problem is, that they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't have a good way to copies, and so to make copies and to distribute things. And so what they had were scribes who would take a document and copy it by hand, and then someone else would they would pass it along to whatever church or whatever region, and they would just get copied and copied and copied and copied over and over again. Now the oldest with the with this verse is the reason that it's not included in or that it's in a footnote is that the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this verse in there. But some of the manuscripts do. And what the scholars think happened is that one of the scribes was making a copy and thought, We need to explain why these people are gathered here. And so they maybe off to the side, maybe they made a footnote or something and said, These people are gathered here because, you know, explaining the local tradition that said that an angel came and stirred up the waters and people went there to be healed. And so it's just a little an aside that over time, throughout the copying of the text over and over again, got eventually inserted into the final form. Does that make sense? And so it's important, you know, for our information. I mean, I appreciate the little bit of information that it gives us why so many people were gathered there because all these legends had sprung up about the pool and the legend the stories say that an angel came and stirred up the waters and if you were in the water the first one in the water like how do you race to the water um would experience healing some people think that there were just some natural springs there but who knows i don't know i wasn't there i've never seen there i've never seen it so i don't know but that's why it might appear in some of your bibles in the text but as a footnote in other ones and it's up to the translation committee of the specific version of the Bible you have as to where it is now I'm telling you all this and we'll probably talk about it again some more because next week our section starts with a passage that is in big brackets it's Jesus and the woman caught in adultery and that's another passage that is not in a lot of manuscripts and so when we come across these things, we have to take them kind of with a grain of salt as saying they are very old. They give us some information, but they may or may not have been part of the original document. So there you have it, a little explanation of text critical issues is what it's called. Okay, so that's the explanation we're given, that an angel came and started up the waters, and they were there expecting healing. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time, y'all. That's a long time, especially if you think about their life expectancy during those days was not as long as ours is. So that could be the better portion of his life that he would have been expected to live. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. So Jesus saw him and he knew. I don't know why he picked out this one man. Out of the multitudes of invalids that it says were there. But he saw him and he knew him. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Thought this question stops me in my tracks. Because the immediate obvious answer is, yes, of course I want to be healed. But that is not how the man responds. Instead, he tells Jesus why he hasn't been healed yet. He gives him the reasons why he hasn't been able to experience the healing. And I just can't stop thinking about the question because I think that it applies to us in so many ways because this is not a metaphor. You know, this, this passage is not a metaphor, but it is an actual historical account of something that actually happened. And yet I think you can apply it to us because Jesus comes to us and he says, do you want to be healed But I think so many times we are so comfortable in our afflictions, whatever it may be, you know, we're used to um, the identity that it gives us. Whether it be um, I'm a victim or, you know, something bad happened to me and can you believe what that person did to me? But Jesus sees and he knows the things that are ailing us. He sees the things that are crippling us, that are keeping us from experiencing him and walking in freedom and in joy. And so whatever it is that is crippling us, whether it's jealousy or envy or grief or bitterness or anger or any of those things, they are every bit as crippling as this physical ailment that this man had. And yet so many times we, like him, we come to church. We come to the place of healing, but we refuse to let go of those things that are crippling our souls. We want to hold on to it because it's more comfortable for some reason to stay angry at someone, to stay justified in our lack of forgiveness and the can you believe what they did than it is to let go of that and be healed to experience the freedom that Jesus is offering us. And so (laughs) this man, I think he, we may wonder at his answer, but at the same time, we are just like him in so many ways. Jesus stands in front of us offering healing, and instead of saying, yes, please take this from me, take this bitterness, take this anger, take this jealousy, take this rage, take this depression, take whatever it is that is ailing us, take it from me. We look at him and we turn away because we're so comfortable being angry or upset or whatever it may be. But the truth is that we cannot hide from Jesus. He sees and he knows even if we can hide it from the people around us. Even if we look okay on the outside, he knows what's going on in our hearts. We cannot hide from him. And so he's standing in front of us and he's offering healing just like he offered this man. The sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. In the end, it didn't really matter whether the man wanted to be healed or not. Jesus, for some reason, chose to heal him. And it says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And in my head, a hair, wah, wah, wah. You know, there's your foreshadowing. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. There's no rejoicing over the healing. No, the, oh my goodness, you haven't been able to walk for 38 years. What happened to you? None of that. It's, why are you carrying your bed? What are you doing with that? And so they have in front of their eyes a living, breathing, walking miracle. And all they can see is what he's doing wrong. And he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not my fault. I mean, I just did what he told me to. Let me pass the blame off here. You know, no. And he's not like overjoyed at the healing either he's not bubbling over with excitement and enthusiasm he's like some guy healed me and he told me to take up my bed and walk so I did like if your friends told you to jump off a cliff would you do it and so he's just kind of passing the blame passing the buck and saying it's not my fault I'm not in trouble don't don't look at me it's not me they asked him who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk now the man who had been healed did not know who it was For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now if you remember, why did Jesus come? Why does John chapter 1 tell us that Jesus came? He came to make known the Father so that we would know him. It says in chapter 1 verse 9 that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's what we are seeing here, is this not knowing, and this not receiving him. The man did not know Jesus. Afterward, Jesus found him again. So, even though the man didn't know Jesus, Jesus again finds him, and he gives him some more instructions that we talked about a while ago. He says to him, see you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, paralysis is pretty bad in this lifetime, but it is, after all, only in this lifetime. I think that there is something worse than that, and that's eternal judgment, eternal separation, eternal um, condemnation for not believing in Jesus, not following him, not turning to him, not trusting in him. And part of that, we talked about this last week, turning to Jesus is turning away from your sin. And so he's saying to him, turn away from your sin. And so that nothing bad can happen to you. Something worse than what you would have experienced could happen. If you don't turn away from it, it will happen. And so how does the man respond? Does he say you're right I should not sin anymore. No. No. He goes and he he tells the Jews. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. There he is, that man over there. He's the one you should be mad at. And so it goes on to say, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, in your homework... I had you look up the prohibition against Sabbath working, what does it say? Does it say that you should not do anything at all? In Exodus, let's see, Exodus, I can't turn there, my pages are sticking together. Chapter 20, verse 8. Now, I don't know if you have can just scan through the other ones, but after that, you get honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. That's pretty short. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So several of the commandments are very short, but the one about the Sabbath is it's a paragraph you get. But even in all of that, It's not as specific as the Pharisees of Jesus' day made it. They had built up 39, a set of 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath. And the last one, the 39th one, was that you were not allowed to carry your possessions from one place to another. And so if you remember, in the weeks past, we said that the Pharisees built kind of a hedge around the law so that in these... um, sets of rules that they established, they were to prevent them from getting near to the actual law. That they, in keeping all of these extra prohibitions, they would not break the actual law of God. Which sounds great on the surface, but the problem is that in their zeal for keeping the law and for keeping the Sabbath holy, that they missed the point. They missed that... um, They were so intent on following the letter of the law that they completely missed the spirit of the law. And God himself is standing in front of them and he has performed a miracle of healing. He has made what is broken new. He has brought together pieces that did not fit together and the man can stand up and walk again. And they can't even see that. All they can see is that he has broken a rule that they made up. Not that the law of God said. And so because they were so focused on this following the law in every nitpicky kind of way, they could not even entertain the idea that Jesus was who he says he was. Because in their mind, the Messiah was one who kept the law as they had envisioned it. It never even occurred to them that they may have gotten it wrong. And Jesus tries to tell them in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now that passage that we just read in Exodus said that God rested on the seventh day, but what do you think he did after that? Did he just sit back and watch time unfold? No, no. The God that we serve is active and he is working in creation. He is a part of everything that happens. He is bringing about redemption. He is working for our salvation. And Jesus says, my father is working and so am I. I am doing the things that my father is doing. And that, instead of consoling them, makes them even more angry. And it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They rightly understood what he said. They, they didn't miss his meaning. They got it. He's saying, I am the son of God. Therefore, I am working because my father is working. But it made them angry. And it says that there were two reasons why they were seeking to kill him. The first was because he was working on the Sabbath and the second was because he made himself equal with God. And because they can't see, because they don't want to even entertain the idea that he is who he is. Y'all, who, who else but God can heal in the way that Jesus did? Jesus says, I just proved to you that I am who I say I am, and they don't even want to hear it. And so because they don't want to hear it, he goes on and explains in verse 19 and following. He says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. In his encounter with the nobleman in chapter 4, he kind of rebuked him for wanting a sign. He said, you won't believe unless you see a sign. But then he went ahead and healed the nobleman's son anyway. And in this case, he says... I'm doing these things, and greater things will you be shown so that you can marvel. Now, what does the word marvel mean? To me, it brings up um, these thoughts of wonder, you know, and awe. That jaw-dropping kind of, can you believe that just happened kind of thing. And so up to this point, Jesus has demonstrated that he is Lord over creation. He turned water into wine. He's transformed that. He has also healed the official sign. So he has power over our physical bodies. He has the power to heal. And with the invalid, he does the same thing. He demonstrates that kind of healing power, that ability to make what is broken new. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And this is interesting because up until this point, there are no resurrections really recorded. And so Jesus is giving them a prophetic word and saying greater things that you will see so that you will marvel. And the Father is going to even raise the dead. You think this is something. Wait till you see the dead walking around. And we know that later on in the Gospel of John, he does do that first with Lazarus, then his own resurrection. And then eventually he promises the resurrection of all of the saints, which is what he talks about here. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so he's saying this kind of harkens back to his conversation with Nicodemus that we talked about last week. He said that you must be born again. You must experience this new life to see the kingdom of God. And what he says here is that those who believe in the Son have already been transferred from the domain of death into the domain of life. When Paul writes about this same idea in Ephesians, he says, you were dead in your sin and your trespasses. You were dead people walking in the world. But then he goes on to say, but God has made you alive in Christ. For believers, he speaks of it as something that has already happened. We are already alive. We already have this new life. He goes in Second Corinthians, he, says, he talks about it by saying that we are a new creation, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that those who believe will not be judged but will pass from death to life. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, an interesting thing about this whole section is that in it, Jesus places himself in a um, subservient kind of position to the Father. Now, we know from John chapter 1 Verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that Jesus is God Himself. And this is where our discussion of the Trinity gets a little hairy (laughs) because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in their power, in their ability in their um, eternal nature, in their um, being, they are equal in their being, but in their office, the roles that they play in redemption history, in our story of salvation, the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. The Son comes from the Father. The Father doesn't come from the Son. And the Holy Spirit comes from both of them. And so there's a hierarchy of sorts in the way that the Trinity interacts with humanity. And yet in their functions, there is a hierarchy. But in their being, they are all one. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it makes sense, but it's crazy to say that they are equal, and yet Mm -hmm. the son serves the father. The son does the father's will. The son is able to judge because the father has given him judgment. The son gives life because the father has told the son to give life, and so... They are equal, and yet they are distinct in the way that they interact with us. And we see this as he continues on in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. All of his power comes from God the Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And now he goes on to say we enter into this kind of legal defense that he is giving of his actions he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. What he is not saying, he is not saying that his words aren't trustworthy or true. What he's saying is that the Jews would not count his testimony as valid because what he says about himself, of course he's going to defend himself. You know, In their legal system, for someone to be tried for, cap- for a capital crime there had to be two witnesses whose stories corroborated. Well, Jesus is saying, you're not going to listen to just me. You need more witnesses to the truth that I'm trying to tell him, tell you. And so then he goes through and names the witnesses that he has. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus He is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist has proclaimed him as the Messiah. He has not backed away from that testimony at all. He says he is a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. So John is a lamp that shines dim. I mean, Jesus says that he's a bright and shining lamp. But compared to the light of the world that has entered John's light is dim indeed, and yet they rejoiced in John's light and turned away from Jesus's. They didn't want to see Jesus's. And then he says, but you, you like John, at least for a little while. And he says that I am who I say I am. So you should at least listen to him. And he says, but if you're not going to listen to John, then you should listen to the works that I do, the signs and the miracles, the wonders. Everything that Jesus does when he performs those miracles are things that only God can do. Nobody else has control over creation or has the ability to heal, the ability to um, bring life to the dead. Only God can do those things. Who can multiply bread and fish the way that he does? Only God can do these things. And so he's saying these works that I'm doing ought to tell you that I am the son of God. That I have the power of God at work within me. That ought to be proof enough. But if that's not proof enough for you, I have the word of my father. He says in verse 37. He has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you don't believe the one whom he has sent. He goes on in verse 39 he says that Moses is the one on whom they have set their hope. Moses, traditionally speaking and, and thought, is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. So the books of the law that they clung to for their salvation came from Moses. Moses wrote the, that law. And so. He says, you have set your hope on Moses, and, but he's saying you have missed the point. The scriptures testify about me. They point to me. The point of the law is not so that you can live this perfect sinless life, so that you can follow every single rule that is written. And the point in the law is to show you your own inadequacy. It is to show you how far from holy you are. It is to point to your need For mercy, your need for grace, your need for God to step in and intervene, and you have missed it. You have totally missed the point. If you think you can do it on your own, you are wrong. You are so very wrong. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. When we think about the Old Testament, those first five books, we don't often think necessarily of Jesus. You know, I don't always read the Old Testament and think, this is talking about Jesus. Yes. But what Jesus is saying is that he has fulfilled everything that Moses wrote about. And so let me flip to my notes so I can find the right references that I'm thinking of. When we look in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses... Encounters God in the burning bush. He says in verse 6 And he, that's God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings. Who is Jesus as he is presented in John? He is the one who sees. He is the one who knows. Jesus sees the suffering of that invalid, and he knows how long he's been there. He sees and he knows. And he, this, I mean, it's astonishing to me. Verse 8, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. And I have come down. Who is Jesus the one who comes down. Why did Jesus come? Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus comes to bring us out of our bondage, to bring us out of our slavery to sin and to deliver us to... A heavenly home that far exceeds the land that was promised to the Israelites. He is the fulfillment of all their best prophecies. He's saying, that was about me. That was me. I am the one who comes. I am the one who saves my people. I am the one where you will find your salvation. Moses knew that. He wrote about me. You should recognize me. I'm standing in front of you, and you don't even see me for who I am. And he goes on, and if we skip down a little bit to verse 13, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. And so Jesus is standing in front of them and he's saying, the father, the one who you claim to believe has sent me to you and you are still refusing to believe. He says, if you will not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, it's interesting because in the book of Exodus, when it doesn't paint a very pretty picture of the people of Israel, right? Like they're all the time, losing their faith, forgetting that God has brought them out of slavery. They're making golden calves. They're doing all sorts of crazy things. And you wonder what in the world they were thinking. God calls them a stiff-necked people. And that means that they're the, they're the kind of, um, you can't control them. Like a horse, you're trying to ride the horse, but the horse won't turn the direction you want them to go. And that's what he says about Israel, that they are a stiff-necked people who refuse to come to him and to believe him. And we'll could, we'll look a little bit more about this in um, as we move on and talk about Jesus as the great I am, as we get to that, that passage here in a few minutes. But, um, you know, Jesus stands in front of them and thousands of years have passed and it seems like nothing has changed. You know, they are still a stiff-necked people who are unwilling to change. But God, in His mercy, comes down to them anyway and offers them salvation anyway, despite their lack of faith and their lack of belief. And so we go on to chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, do you think Jesus was really wondering where the food was going to come from? Mm-hmm. No, he's testing Philip. He he wants Philip to, you know, give a show of faith. But poor Philip, he didn't know. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. That's the equivalent of about eight months' salary for a an average worker. And so he's saying a whole lot of money wouldn't buy enough for them to eat just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said to him, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So it says the men sat down. There were about 5,000 men. That means the crop was probably larger than that. You account for women and children as well. It could have been... I don't know, up to 15,000, maybe more. That's a lot of people. Can you imagine trying to feed that many people? So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. It was like an all-you-can-eat buffet that never runs out. It's not like the church potluck where there's like the one good plate of chicken, and, you know, if you don't get in line soon enough, it might be gone. It's not like that. There was no fear of the food running out because when Jesus supplies, he supplies in abundance. Just like the water into wine, he has abundantly met their needs. It says, When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said... This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They saw the sign. And they knew that he was the one that Moses had spoken about. So this crowd is apparently a different crowd. From the one that he was talking to in the previous chapter or section. And yet... They come to the right conclusion, but then what they want to do with him is not in line with God's will, God's vision for the kingdom and what the kingdom of God will look like. And so Jesus, he just... I'm always amazed when you come to these passages in the gospel where it says, you know, they were seeking to stone him, but he slipped away. You know, how does he get away? But he he does because he's God, and he is able to do that, and he slips away, he retreats, he will not let... um, he will not let their ideas of what is best come to pass. And sometimes I think, you know, we we want to make Jesus into the Lord of our own little kingdoms. You know, we have this idea of what his kingdom should look like. and And we don't always test it by scripture. You know, but Jesus is saying, like, he... He is not content to leave us to our own devices. You know, they wanted someone to come and rescue them and be the next great king of Israel to come in with military might to cast out Rome. And Jesus is saying, I'm not here just for that. I've got something better. That is, that is such small thinking. Let's think bigger. Let's go bigger here. And so he won't let their plan come to pass because he knows that something better is coming. It says in verse 16, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Wouldn't you be frightened? I mean, if you saw somebody... Walking on the way, I mean, you can imagine that like at first he was just as far off speck and they're like, what is that? I mean, do you see, what is that? And then they realize that it's Jesus. And it's almost like, you know, in John chapter one, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So they were used to seeing Jesus in his human form. But then he goes on to say, and we have beheld his glory. I think this is a section where maybe Jesus's glory is peeking out a little bit. Like, Jesus, you might want to tuck that back in there. Your glory is showing. Because who can walk on the water except the Lord of creation? Only Jesus can. And he says to them in verse 20, he says, It is I, do not be afraid. Now, what you can't tell from this English translation is that the words that he uses there, the Greek construction for it is I, is ego, a me. And this is the same phrase that is used in that passage we just read about Moses and God revealing his identity. I am who I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the same phrase that is used when God tells his name to Moses. When Moses says, what should I tell them? God says, ego, me. okay. And so Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Lord and master of the sea, the winds and the waves. He's got it all under control. He's walking across that rolling sea. And they're freaking out because there's this storm and there's this person walking across the water. And what he says to them is, it's me. I am is here. The Lord of all of this is here. You have no need to be frightened. And it says they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. In Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asks Jesus, well, he doesn't ask Jesus. He asks God to show him his glory. This is right after the whole golden calf incident and Uh, Moses has interceded on behalf of the Israelites. He has asked God not to punish them. He has offered himself up as a sacrifice. He says, if you would have mercy, but if not, then take my life. Wipe me out of your book. And God says, I will indeed um, repay the sins of people. Sin does not go unpunished in Exodus. He He is not relenting in his judgment of sin. And so in all of this, Moses comes to him and he says, Show me your glory. And the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So L, lowercase O-R-D, is just regular old Lord, but... L capital O capital R capital D is Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. So I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. I am and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me, but see me and live. And the Lord said, behold. There's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses does what God tells him. He is hidden there in the cleft of the rock. And then in chapter 34, verse 6, as the Lord passes by, he proclaims his name to Moses. And this is the first time in the entire Bible when God describes himself. He gives adjectives to his name to declare what he is like. And he says in 34 verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he goes on in verse 10. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I do with you. And that is what Jesus does when he comes. He proclaims the steadfast love of the Lord. He proclaims the mercy. He proclaims the grace. But he also proclaims the fact that sin will not go unpunished, that you must make this move from death to life. And he does these works, these marvels, these wondrous things to point people to the truth. And when he goes on and he says that he is the bread of life, I don't think we have time to read through all the rest of it. So we'll talk through some of the important things. What he's saying is that I am your sustenance. I am your source of life. It is in me that you live. Only when you take me and only when you absorb me into your system only when the holy spirit dwells within you will you have life only there will you have it and the people there who are with him are so confused because they're like what are you talking about you came down from heaven what do you know we know your mom we know your dad we know who you are you did not come from heaven and jesus is saying you think you know me but you don't i am the bread." Of life. Just like in the wilderness, God provided for you with manna. He sent bread down from heaven then. So also has he sent bread to sustain you now. I am what you need to live. Look at me. I am all you ever need. Just look at me. And I'm so much better than that manna because it was temporary. What happened? Do you remember? If they tried to gather up more than was necessary for one day, it's spoiled. It did not last. And Jesus is saying, that was temporary. But the way that God provided for you then, the way he cared for you and sustained your life then, is the same way he cares for you and is sustaining you now through me. I am that bread. That picture of God's faithfulness was pointing to me it is fulfilled in me look to me take me in gorge yourselves on me I mean the language that he uses says you must feast on my flesh and drink my blood it's very like cannibalistic in nature and it sounds really gross if you think about it but what he's saying is you have to come to me to meet your most basic of needs how often In a day, does your body tell you that you need to eat? I tell Dennis that, and we joke about it, because I'm like, there is never a time when I do not want to eat. I am always hungry. I can always eat something else. Like, I may not be hungry, but if that looks good, then um, sure, I'll take that. Sounds good to me. And so our bodies remind us of our own frailty, of our own humanity by saying, hey, feed me. I need some fuel. And Jesus is saying, if you come to me, I will supply you with bread that never runs out. You will never be hungry again. I am providing you with all that you need and sustaining your life, not just for this one, for this temporary frail body that you have, but for the new one that I am giving you, my bread is better than any kind of temporary bread that you can have on this earth. I can meet that deepest of need, whatever it is that you need to keep going. I am it. What you need to do is look to me. But when they heard that, even the people who were following him, who wanted to be with him, it says in verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And sometimes I think that this world wants to pick and choose the sayings of Jesus that they like. Jesus says, love one another. Turn the other tree, the golden rule, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. They don't want to believe the harder sayings. And this is the hard truth for us as believers, is that you don't get to pick and choose which words are true. You either believe Jesus and the word and stand by it in its totality, in its whole, Or you don't believe it at all. Because it is the whole word of God that is truth. Even the hard sayings are true. And whether we like them or not, I mean, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God has said it. And that is the way it is. And it turns out that it was too hard for many of them to believe. It says in verse 66, many turned away and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to leave too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? Where else are we supposed to go? We know you. We believe you. And so they stick with him. And even here we have a bit of foreshadowing where even among the twelve, there was Judas who was going to betray him eventually. So, That section was in the feeding of the 5,000 at Passover. And then we fast forward in chapter 7 to the Feast of Booths. Does anyone know what the Feast of Booths is about? It is um, a harvest time festival. It was a time when they celebrated um, God's provision for them in the wilderness. And so it's called the Feast of Booths because during the time they would erect little tents to kind of commemorate their camping time for 40 years in the wilderness and so they celebrated what God had done for them during that time Um, and the part that I would like to zoom in on here is that there was so much controversy swirling around Jesus nobody could agree on who he was Some people said he was a good man. This is verse 12, chapter 7, verse 12. He's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. But nobody knew what to do with him. And so he stands up and he teaches with authority. So the signs that he has done should point to his identity as the son of God. But then his word, it says the Jews marveled, there's that word again, at the words that he was speaking. They wanted to know how he could teach because he's never been to seminary. Where did he get all that knowledge? And he says, my knowledge comes from God the Father, who, by the way, you should know. Um, But you don't, obviously, because you don't believe me. You should recognize. They recognized that the words were words of truth, but they did not recognize what it meant. They refused to believe that he could be who he said he could. And so even when they had this irrefutable testimony in front of them, they still could not believe. They try to arrest him, but they can't because his time had not yet come. We talked about that some last week, that this idea of God's plan had not fully unraveled yet. It was not yet time for him to be here. And this is the last part that I want to talk about. In verse 37, on the last day of the feast, The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, remember, this feast that is going on is celebrating their time in the wilderness, the way that God had provided for them in the wilderness. And on this last day, the highlight of it, they are remembering the way that God made water pour out from the rock in the wilderness. And that is the background. Jesus stands up. They're remembering the way that God brought water forth for them from the rock, and he stands up, and he's shouting, If anyone will come to me, I will give you streams of living water. Out of you will the Spirit flow, And it will be unstoppable. You will never thirst again. When we were in the wilderness, we were thirsty and God provided. And now anything that your soul is longing for, anything that your soul is thirsting for, I have got it. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's saying in the Old Testament, we made water flow from a rock. But now... It will flow out from your hearts. And that's another metaphor for the Spirit, for the transformation that comes from the Spirit, for the pouring out of the Spirit on those who believe in Him. That it will fill us, that it will sustain us, that it will carry us through. John specifically says that the Spirit had not yet been given. It wasn't the time for the Spirit yet, because Jesus had not yet been glorified even in the midst of all of this opposition all of this confusion swirling around Jesus he does not mince words I mean he is quite clear about who he is and what he says about himself but they were so convinced of what they thought they knew that they could not see him for who he truly was they didn't want to believe that God would come in that form. And yet that's the form that God chose in all of his wisdom, and all of his grace, and all of his mercy. And Jesus says, that whole time that Moses was writing, he was pointing to me. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy that has ever been given. He is the promise of the Old Testament, the one who is sent to deliver and to redeem. And God, in his great mercy and compassion, sent Jesus to them knowing that they were a stiff-necked people who probably would refuse him. But that didn't stop Jesus from telling them the truth anyway. I think for us, um, we, we have to remember that we are a lot like the Pharisees sometimes in this story because we are the ones who were supposed to know God. And we believe this word. We search this word. We study this word just like they did. But my prayer for us is that we will not miss the spirit of it in the way that they did. They were so focused on the letters that they couldn't see the heart of the God behind it. And My prayer is that God would reveal himself to us through the study that we would come to know him. And that heart that so loved the world that He sent the Son so that we may know Him, so that we would not go on in our ignorance, and that we could come to Him in faith and have the bread of life, that we could drink from that well of living water, and that we would have eternal life.